Well, good morning again, and welcome to St. Paul's. My name is Tyler. So glad that you're here. It's your first time here, and especially warm welcome to you. I invite you to pray with me as we begin. Well, Father, I pray that you send your spirit upon us now. Drown this place. That everything that is spoken and everything is heard might reveal to us your living word, your son, Jesus Christ. We ask it in his name. Amen. So a few years back, <clears throat> I was catching up with a friend of mine from church, not this church. And when I asked how he was doing, he gave me the routine pleasantries at first. And then after he got those out of his system, his face fell a little bit. And he said, he couldn't even really look at me. He said, yeah, I've, I've been struggling though, you know, um, guy stuff. I've been watching some stuff online I shouldn't be. And it was so striking, because if you'd have met this guy, you'd have said, here's somebody who's got it all together. He's got everything under control. Great family, happy marriage, happy kids, top of his profession. And yet, here was someone who was all of those things and who was finding himself unable to control behavior that, at least on one level, he didn't want to be doing. We're on week three of a four-part teaching series about what makes a good life. We're looking at the four cardinal virtues of the classical tradition, which aren't exclusively Christian, but which followers of Jesus are called to embody in a particular way. Uh, prudence, justice, temperance, and fortitude. Today we're looking at temperance or moderation, and specifically the quality that makes moderation possible, which is self-control. A couple weeks back, Jenny talked about how to make wise choices. You might remember her talking about how you can spend your life climbing a ladder and get to the top and discover you've been leaning it against the wrong wall. It's a great, great image. But today we're going to talk about why it is that even when you're climbing the right ladder, our feet slip so much. What is self-control and why is it so, so hard? Well, let's start with a definition of self-control that we'll refine as we go. Okay, let's, let's try this out. Self-control is the freedom to do what I want. We like freedom, right? It fits with our broader culture. There's big money, actually, in selling us freedom, control of your body, Peloton to CrossFit, keto to vegan, control of mind and money, basically the books that they sell in airports, you know, life hacks for internal peace and corporate success. So self-control, the freedom to do what I want. But that doesn't work. Because our wants and desires aren't simple, and they don't always line up. Like, I want to be healthy, I want to be fit, and I want the cupcake. That friend of mine I mentioned, he wanted to be pure of heart, and he wanted to watch porn. So clearly, self-control can't just be the freedom to do what I want, because I want mutually exclusive things, sometimes at the same time. So let's revise our definition. Self-control is the freedom to decide what I want. That sounds good, which usually means deciding between immediate physical appetites, food, drink, sleep, sex, pleasures, and the more abstract pleasure of living a certain way, health, sobriety, responsibility, etc. And when people talk about self-control, what they usually mean is the freedom to control and order your physical appetites, which are all up in your face, in a way that lines up with the lifestyle that you want. Okay, but no. Because, not that either, because the freedom in that sense of self-control is actually a complete illusion, isn't it? I'm not choosing what I want. I'm choosing what I obey. 
I can decide between feeling healthy or the dopamine hit of chocolate ganache, but I didn't decide to want either of those in the first place, did I? And our culture thrives on this conflict. I recently saw a commercial for one of those network morning shows, and they had in the same montage, this is supposed to make you watch the show, a clip from a cooking segment where there was like, they'd managed to jam like a pound of melted brie into this piece of bread, followed by the latest workout trend that was supposed to give you the body you want, and not a hint of irony in juxtaposing these two things. Just shameless. So we've got to revise our definition again, don't we? Self-control isn't the freedom to decide what I want, it's the freedom to choose between wants that I didn't choose in the first place. And if you call that freedom, listen, I've got an affordable, detached starter home in Toronto I'd like to sell you. Human beings have freedom of choice, and that's usually what we imagine self-control to be, choosing between options. But that's not freedom. Freedom of choice is what you offer to children or prisoners to give them the illusion of control and agency. If you're in jail, and I tell you you can pick which cell you want to sleep in, you've got freedom of choice, but you're not free, are you? Freedom means that you could walk out the front door. Freedom means you have to walk out the front door. Freedom means you don't get to be in jail. And none of us is truly free because we are all needy, fragile, dying creatures. And at the end, most of what we call self-control is just about deciding which version of needy, fragile, dying creatures we're going to be. Turns out that all self-control is actually self-love in disguise. Just a matter of choosing which self you're going to love, which desires you're going to feed. A while back, I preached about how we need to subdue the passions, and a friend who wasn't a Christian asked me about it. She didn't like it because she thought it made it sound like faith was opposed to pleasure and love. And I explained, no, 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 in the theological vocabulary of Scripture, of the Bible, passions are understood as desires that dominate us. Like, we all have desires, food, drink, sex, whatever, and they might tug at us like dogs on a leash. But theologically speaking, when a desire becomes a passion, it's like the dog turns around and puts the leash on you. We can have passions for things that have no redeeming value, like pornography. We can have passions for good things that are gone bad. Like, there's nothing wrong with good fear, or good food, or good, or good beer, for example. But it goes wrong, becomes a passion, if, like, for example, the bottle starts calling the shots. And our passions aren't innocent. They aren't kind or good or gentle to us. Passion comes from the Latin word for suffering. Passions own us. They rule us, we people who love freedom. And there is suffering in that domination. The earliest Christians came up with a list of these passions. You might recognize this as the basis for the so-called seven deadly sins. Might seem archaic, but a couple thousand years old, I think it looks pretty fresh. Gluttony, lust, greed, despair, wrath, sloth, vanity, and pride. These are the passions that afflict us. Love yourself. That's a mantra of our culture. And we think we're loving ourselves by trying to satisfy these passions, but these passions are insatiable. And if you feed them in the end, they will eat you. And whether you're Christian or not, we all recognize one version of that, don't we? How the passions dominate and afflict. We call it addiction. The musician Nick Cave, who's been sober for years, describes his former addiction like this. The thing I liked about heroin, he says, was the structure it imposed on your life to some degree. 
your choices are very limited. You get up, you have to score, or you get sick. So you score. And later on in the evening, you need to take some more. Provided you have money and a supply, it's a structured life. And if you don't have money, it's pure chaos, and I don't advise it. In an addiction, what starts as the indulgence of a desire turns into the domination of a passion. And the various selves that make up a person, husband, father, friend, professional, get consumed by that one single identity of the gambler, the alcoholic, the sex addict. Now, none of us, regardless of faith or lack of it, has trouble recognizing addiction as destructive, but our culture likes to draw a line around addiction and say, if you stay on this side of it, you're okay, and that's just not true, because we're all afflicted by passions, and none of us is okay. It's just that some of our passions are more socially acceptable than others. Some let you keep participating in the economy. Like, we don't talk nearly enough about how anger is pure spiritual poison. How social media might as well have been invented to keep us addicted to vanity. What other people think. How if you suffer from an opioid addiction, you might wind up on a park bench. But if you suffer from greed and vanity, you might wind up with your name on the side of a hospital building. And listen, maybe crude vices hold no appeal for you, lucky duck. Like you're never attempted to pour the pinot too early or too many times. And you're living by all the rules of a good church score. You can still go through your whole life gripped by pride, looking down at all the people who lack the self-control you think you've got. So maybe you're an addict here with no illusions about your capacities for self-control. I am so glad you are here. We've got people here with their sobriety chips, whether it's one day or one decade, living testimonies to God's power. These are the spiritual rock stars of this place. Or maybe you're someone who other people think has it under control. But you know. You know that left to our own devices, our own attempts at self-control, none of us is free because at the end of the day, it's just one desire or another shouting at you saying, love me. Culture tells us, tells you to love yourself. Love yourself by satisfying those passions, and at the same time, it makes you feel worthless. Less than. Anybody ever made you feel like that? You got stuff you've never told anybody? You got shame or guilt or pain? I want to tell you a secret. Our problem is that we actually don't love ourselves enough. We can't. We can't love ourselves as much as we ought to. But I'm here to tell you that God the Father made you in His image. That God the Son died so that you could live. And that God the Holy Spirit wants to live in you. That's who you are. That's who you were made to be. Try to love ourselves with these fleeting little pleasures, the shopping, the scrolling, the drink, when you exist to know the infinite delight of God? You can never have enough love in yourself to love who God made you to be. But God does. Did you hear our scripture today that Adriel read for us? Did you really hear it? Listen to this. This isn't my words. This is God's word. It's alive and it's for you today. God's divine power has given us everything needed for life and godliness. Has given. Through the knowledge of him who called us, 
by his own glory and goodness. Thus he has given us through these things, has given us mercy. That's Jesus who died for you. It's done. Has given us his precious and very great promises. A gift that has been given, a promise for the future. So that through his promises you may escape from the corruption that is in the world because of lust. That's the lust of self-love, trying to satisfy those passions that want you to suffer. So that through God's promises, the promises of the Holy Spirit, you may escape and become participants of the divine nature. Participants of the divine nature. Sweet mercy. That's what God's got in store for us. To be part of a love so infinite it makes our solar system look like a grain of sand. So if God's love is real, if God's promises are real, what's all this mean for self-control? Well, where do we wind up again? What was our last one? Uh, self-control is the freedom to choose between wants that I didn't choose. No, no, that is not good enough. Not good enough. Self-control, real self-control is the freedom to want what God wants for me. Regardless of what I'm going through in my life, regardless of whatever troubles I'm facing, regardless of whatever struggles I'm enduring, God's love for me, God's will for me is greater than any love or wish that I might have for myself. Self-control is God giving you the freedom to walk out the prison door rather than pick which cell you're going to sleep in for the rest of your life. It's the freedom to live the life that God wants for you, free from the addiction, free from the porn, free from the binging, free from the anger, free from the gossip, free from the greed, free from the vanity and the pride. And how do you live this way? How do you have this self-control? It's a matter of the heart. We think about self-control, all those versions we described, self-control of our behavior, but as long as the heart's still calling the shots, behavior's just a symptom. Because at the center of your heart, there's a throne. And most people are in an ongoing struggle of which version of themselves gets to sit in it, who gets to be king or queen. True self-control requires I put Jesus on that throne. Not me, and not some version of me, because I make a lousy king, and not just because I'm American. But Jesus, who died for me. thing is this, though. The problem with freedom is it's wide open. You bust out of prison, there's a whole life to be lived. What do you do? Recovery is spiritual, but I don't want to spiritualize it, if you know what I mean. And you know our desires have carved deep ruts into our lives, and it's easy to just oops, slip back in. So this might not be a once-and-done sort of thing, because temptation can put you on autopilot, can it? Just pouring that drink like you don't even know what your body's doing, or opening that browser window. And that's why self-control, true self-control, the freedom of wanting what God wants for you, it requires structure, it requires stability, support, it requires a community. In October, we're going to be talking a lot about how to build the concrete practices of a rhythm of life that supports precisely this. Stay tuned for this. It starts Sunday, October 16th. You do not want to miss this. In the meanwhile, maybe you find a connect group that you can be honest with. Or you reach out to me or Ben or Jenny or Karen for a talk because there is nothing you can tell us that isn't covered by Jesus' blood. There will always be moments when you feel that temptation, that self-control bubbling up out of your heart like swamp gas. It's going to keep going because it will. And when you notice it, here's what you do. Today, uh, later this week, in a month's time, you take a breath because you're always breathing, right? 
There's not going to be a moment this week where you're like, I'm, I'm going to chill out on the breathing for a while. You're always breathing, and every breath is a fresh start. And you can start fresh right now. I'm going to walk you through it. You have to start by naming silently in your head, in your heart, the passions that own you, and you know what they are because you've been spending the last 10 minutes thinking about them, terrified that somebody else knows what they are. And right now, you're going to name them to God who already knows what they are. The things that you're powerless to change on your own, and you're going to ask him to take them away, to change you. Now, maybe this is new to you. Maybe this is the first time you've ever set foot in a church. You're like, this is a lot. Uh, <laughs> but maybe this is new to you, and your passions are all over you. Maybe you feel like things are out of control. Or maybe you've been walking with Jesus a long time, and you've experienced the freedom because the change is real. And your passions, they're not shouting anymore, but they still whisper. And because your heart's gotten quieter, those whispers are still pretty full volume. They still trip you up. It's okay if you want to stop listening to me right now and pray. You can close your eyes. You can go on your knees if you want. We have these little kneelers in the pews. You can go on your knees. There is no shame here. There is no place for shame in God's house. Today, today can be the day that yesterday was your last drink. The last score. The last time you scratched that itch that you should not scratch. Jesus can change your life today. He died so that you could live. Do you think he's going to refuse to help you now? Ask him to do it. Here's what you do. Today, tomorrow, when your passions have you pinned, you call out for Jesus' help. Do that right now. Every breath a fresh start. If you're breathing, God's not done with you. Not a long, drawn-out prayer, but the kind of prayer you yell to a lifeguard if you're getting pulled out to sea, or the kind of prayer a kid yells to his mom if he's falling off his bike. Jesus, help me. Jesus, have mercy on me. We're about to be singing a song. There's this line that goes, oh, the chains are released. I can sing, I am free, yet not I, but through Christ in me. That's it exactly. Pray your guts out with that song. My Jesus, my Jesus, there is power in your name. So not our will, but your will be done. Not our will, but your will. Your will. In the name of Jesus, your chains are broken. Amen.